There's a solemn memory exercise most people have probably heard at least once in their life. Can you recall where you were when you heard about 9-11? In the first years following the attacks on 9-11, personal stories ran the gamut of harrowing, to inspirational, to blithely comedic, and of course, they would be. After all, 9-11 was a national tragedy that would marshal decades of changes to the very day-to-day -day lives of every American, and people all deal with tragedy in different ways. For me, my distant memories of that day were from my first grade classroom. Hushed, panicked conversation between the teachers, should they show the kids what was happening? How much danger were we in at the school? As a child in a Jewish day school, I was used to seeing an armed guard on campus, but despite some scares here and there, we never really had much cause for concern. On that September morning, though, I remember my little school locking down for the first time in my education there. My mom picked my sister and I up from school, and we spent the morning watching the news coverage. Mom, tough as ever, matter-of-factly explained what had happened, why we had to leave school, and gave us space to talk and voice our questions and fears. That was 20 years ago. A literal lifetime for some. Next spring, a group of young adults will graduate college, some of whom were not even born when 9-11 took place. They'll spill out from the halls of their universities and trade schools and into the American job market, and they won't remember where they were on 9-11. And yet, their lives have been affected by it nonetheless. The world they inhabit, that they inherit from all of us who do remember 9-11, has been changed in ways that are esoteric even to us, nigh incomprehensible to them. The September 11th attacks, though, were not a single moment in a vacuum and they certainly weren't the first terrorist attacks that affected Americans. Indeed, they weren't even the first attacks on the World Trade Center. In 1993, Ramzi Youssef, Ayad Ismail, and five other men, under the direction and finance of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, attempted to destroy the Twin Towers with a truck bomb. The attack failed, and nearly all of the conspirators were caught and convicted. Throughout the 1990s, though, terrorism was on the rise, particularly in the Middle East. But 9-11 was, for all intents and purposes, the shot heard round the world. What would follow would become the longest war in US history, with a multi-trillion dollar budget spanning several countries against the most elusive enemy we've ever fought. The global war on terror, or GWAT, would shape and inform US policy decisions, economic trends, and perhaps most interestingly, pop culture for decades. As the US withdrawal from Afghanistan looms over our current news cycle, it's tantalizing to ask the big question. What the hell happened? 9-11 was certainly the when, but the answers for the what, the who, the how, and the why all remain complicated. But any conversation must start with one man, Donald Rumsfeld. Reports that say there's, that, that, that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because as we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Okay, maybe that's a bit dramatic. Donald Rumsfeld was practically a DC native by the time the 9-11 attacks were carried out. He had begun his career 40 years prior, being elected to the US House of Representatives at the age of 30. He would then spend the rest of his life floating between appointed roles at the White House. As a friend of Richard Nixon, Rumsfeld was constantly given cushy appointments that suited his bureaucratic interests. But as those interests dried up, 
Rumsfeld pushed himself into the realm of national defense, first as the U.S. ambassador to NATO, and eventually the secretary of defense. Twice. Rumsfeld's first term as secretary of defense occurred in the 1970s under President Gerald Ford. His second term, and perhaps the one he is most well known for, occurred in the 2000s under George W. Bush. Known at once as a shadowy, calculating bureaucrat and a playful, philosophical thinker, Rumsfeld managed an interesting feat. Being in the room for some of the most important foundational moments for the global war on terror, but rarely taking the credit, or more frequently the blame, for any of them. And thus, to this day, he remains an oft-forgotten figure by all but the most in tune with the politics of the early 2000s. Remember that memory exercise? Sometimes I like to put a different spin on it. I wonder where famous and important people were when they got the news of the attacks. For some, we're able to see that moment crystallized. George W. Bush, for example, will be remembered forever in that moment. His dumbfounded expression captured on digital camera as an aide quietly delivered the news to the president, who sat amongst unaware children at an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida. But I do wonder where Donald Rumsfeld was, and what was going through his mind at that moment. That same thought apparently interested documentarian Errol Morris as well. Morris's one-on-one with former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, captured in the documentary The Fog of War, had been a huge hit. His emotional breakthroughs with McNamara gave people a new lease on the Vietnam War, and the people responsible for it, good, bad, or ugly. Whether or not Morris really believed he could accomplish the same pathos with Donald Rumsfeld is not immediately clear. Over the course of 11 sessions and over 30 hours of footage, Morris grills Rumsfeld on the minefield that is his second term as Secretary of Defense. And yet, at the end of the film, the audience might feel even less sure of some things than when we started. Titled The Unknown Known, after one of Rumsfeld's more famous, ambiguous quotes, the film is both confounding and still highly illuminating. To discuss it, I'm bringing in Jake Hunter. Jake is a defense, security, and justice consultant at Deloitte, an international consultancy firm whose work involves everything from risk assessment to policy advisement, and whose clients range from MetLife to Microsoft. He studied international affairs and counterterrorism policy at Florida State University. Together, we will discuss the unknown known, and hopefully untangle some of the complicated history and reasoning behind, simply, what happened to the U.S., when they fell. I'd imagine for you, I don't know, you know, so I know I know what your job title is, and I have some inkling, I guess, of what you're doing, but I have to imagine that your office has been a lot busier the last couple of weeks than it maybe has been in the last year. Yeah. I, so the weird thing is is the company is huge. It, it, there's, I, I, I always forget the number, but I mean, there's like 370,000 employees. The federal sector is newer and a little bit smaller, but it's still as far as like the DC location is, is probably around a hundred to 150. So like we're, we're a small army and, and, and 
like every consulting firm are kind of like integrated into most agencies of government. So it, it hits uh, at a lot of different levels. To some people, it's, you know, any kind of security crisis is irrelevant because they deal with manual day to day. A lot of people that, you know, I, I work with are, are just uh, operation support. You know, so they, they support HR practices, they improve existing processes, a lot of tech implementation, stuff like that. And, and obviously, based on given crisis or, or just the environment of the world, there's going to be some level of dynamic change to be able to adapt. Um, but, but more people are hit than others. You know, people who are at USAID, people who are hit at, at state, people who are supporting Department of Defense or, or anything that's relevant to, you know, the, the perpetual crisis in Afghanistan, um, you know, are, are in some degree going to hear a little bit more traffic. Um, clients are going to be a little bit more demanding as far as, you know, sometimes it's of implementation of those simple tasks uh, as those tasks get a lot trickier because, you know, how do you manage human rights of, or uh, excuse me, human resources of, of, you know, federal employees who are, are stationed abroad and suddenly, you know, whether they, they get their leave without pay processed of, of other kind of standard employees uh, as opposed to those people who are directly impacted in a crisis is going to uh, change pretty vastly. But uh, of course, when it comes to the policy perspective, it, it's especially tricky because the period that we're in right now, like the last two months and the upcoming three months, in, in a funny way, are the most essential kind of period of time for a presidential transition. And, and we're still like very much, you know, within the first year and in kind of a transition point, we're at the point where almost all of the um, appointed figures and, and Senate confirmed are in place, actual policies are starting to, to be enacted. From a, a, a process perspective, you start to see a lot of these like change management things that come through that are, are trickle down from executive order or, or new administration policy come in. Uh, they're actually starting to be implemented now rather than slow rolled. And, and, and as a result of that, uh, to just get kind of dorky with it, like the level of risk goes up because a lot of these executive orders, a lot of these needs to acquiesce to new policy or prepare for expected policy coming in uh, gets expedited. You get urgent change requests, emergency change requests kind of plow through. Um, and and that, that causes a lot of problems for everybody by nature of, because this huge backlog of things has to move through a system uh, in one way or another, whether that be a, a change in policy, a change in HR, a change in strategy, uh, a change in your workforce, a change in hiring, whatever else, um, it exposes cracks. It, it has to happen because otherwise the country just drags along and nothing changes and the new administration from a ground level means nothing. Um, right. But you know, to, to push things forward so quickly, and, and to have this backlog, especially from the previous administration, where where you know some some core processes of government as occurs in any kind of uh, government that that's more conservative and trying to limit the powers of federal government, suddenly things need to get done that haven't you know, or have been put on hold for the past four right. years. The muscles so only, atrophied a bit, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of the people who who I work with directly are are, are not like political kind of people. They're they're they're. Uh, government employees who have usually been around for at least 10 years, uh, you know, they're, they're executives, they're CIOs, they're CFOs, you know, of their specific offices within a specific chain. Um, some are appointed, some, some aren't like they're secondary appointed or appointed by an appointee. Um, so 
but but they tend to have been around you're not dealing with a bunch of people who are just like grifters and and um you know to have no idea what their job is that does happen you occasionally get people in who you know are appointees of appointees and uh, they're like oh i just came from i don't know stirring the pot somewhere in europe and you know i, I was stationed in luxembourg as a like a, a ambassador that you know i i got for paying the previous president a million bucks for you know some speaking engagement or something like that you know they come in they're like oh so your first job is to tell me what my job is and how i should do it um but it, just that tremendous backlog that that increased like flow of 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 change that that kind of slams at this nearing one year point comes into play and then a crisis hits and and you have you know something that is inevitably going to impact everyone in the united states in some kind of way um and right. that that's when things get really tricky where it gets really busy and the funny thing about living and working in dc is is even if you don't see a direct aspect of it in your job or you see kind of residual impact chances are within your network um you're going to see aspects of it uh in, 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 in with your friends, with your roommates, et cetera. I, I personally wi live with uh, two alumni friends of mine from FSU um, who both work in like refugee resettlement. And so, <laughs> so they're uh, pretty yeah. busy right now, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, things have ramped up a little bit for me, like job gets a little bit more stressful because the level of, of risk and accountability kind of goes up by nature of, of some things happening around me. But I always have that perspective of like, oh shit like i could be i could be doing this my roommates i know you know especially last week we're we're you know working 12 15 hour days not getting yeah. paid near enough to to be able to do the kind of stuff they're doing because they have to respond to the crisis a lot more directly but that's that's the nature of the business that's the nature of the town yeah definitely and i mean i guess you know if i had a if to pose a question i mean it, were you expecting this to be as topical as it is you know you know, we knew looking at what President Biden had said he was going to do and, you know, those plans that were being enacted and rolled out, I think we knew that there was going to be something happening. But to the degree at which it's happening now, was there an expectation from people who were, you know, who I don't want to say necessarily insiders, but, you know, people who were watching the situation, who had been watching what's going on in the Middle East and in Afghanistan, uh, you know, in Central Asia for a long time now? Mm -hmm. I'm just curious you know, was there an expectation of like, we need to brace for this or, you know, what was, what's the atmosphere like there? I'm just, you know, mm -hmm. just in general. Yeah. So this, I would say it was wholly expected. Uh, I don't think anybody really anticipated like a, a great pullout of a war that the country has been in for, for, you know, closing in on 20 years. Uh, and it's Afghanistan. We've known from two and a half, three years back when, when Trump really started making moves uh, in regards to negotiating uh, with, with Taliban leaders, with, with starting to, to talk about leaving, with moving air bases, um, you know, and, and, and then increasingly within his last couple of months when U.S. forces started to abandon key footholds overnight without telling local individuals um, there was an expectation that that this was going to happen, and 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 people, it, it's not just on the previous administration as well. People prepare years for this. They they people always love talking about pulling out of conflicts, and you know the the best result is just to to get out of there and leave it to to locals, do what we can to to ease the blow. 
etc. But but transition is always always going to be painful, and and more times than not, it's going to be a whole lot painful, more painful than you expect. Um, and it, it, it's always going to impact the United States because of how invested we get into these these kind of things. And and so there was an understanding of, regardless of how the end of the United States involvement in the conflict ended up, whether it be the pre-existing Afghanistan government being able to hold stable, being able to you know have those trained police forces that the United States has spent billions, trillions on to, you know, to, to be able to hold fast and, and, and be able to retain some sense of command. Uh, or, you know, there was obviously at least some expectation of, of what has happened, of, of a Taliban overrun, of the government immediately collapsing. You know, you, you read into some of the Pentagon Papers S things that we've seen, um, you know, in the, the past year come out. And, or, I mean, I, I work with a bunch of like reserve military guys. I, I you know, have, have, have talked to people in the military. Um, it, it, it's not really any surprise that the forces on the ground weren't going to last too long. And, and, you know, that's something that I'm sure we'll get into. One of the United States' biggest problems in, in, in jumping into any kind of guerrilla proxy warfare with a lot of different actors is, is they don't have an understanding of, of culture and build out of, of like how these different societies that are fundamentally structured different from us work and, and how things we always have a perspective of how things can collapse, but but the U.S. perspective and specifically the DOD's perspective of how different countries operate and how different countries can collapse and have internal discourse, I, I don't think it's something that we're we're very well trained on, even though we've had a ton of experience of it, you know, since the '60s, one could argue. But so there was an expectation, there's an understanding within these different federal agencies of what can happen and what the impact will be. But it always surprises you in some new way. Um, yeah, yeah, I would. I, I definitely. I hear that. And luckily for us, I would say we're not. I'm curious, you know, to take the temperature of it. But luckily, we're not here to, you know, have to litigate who takes responsibility for what's going on right now, yeah. because you and I are going to talk about uh, a movie that came out a couple of years ago and uh, the, you know, the, the person and persons highlighted within the, the film uh, and talk about some of the, the groundwork, some of the foundational uh, aspects that led, I think, to U.S. involvement in the conflict in Afghanistan and uh, you know, generally the global war on terror. Um, and that movie is The Unknown Known which is a documentary directed by Errol Morris from 2014. Uh, Errol Morris, famously the documentarian behind uh, The Fog of War, which is a very similar film, uh, an interview with Robert McNamara, former Secretary of Defense uh, during the Vietnam War. Um, Errol Morris, also the documentarian behind the acclaimed police procedural documentary, The Thin Blue Line. But today we're going to talk about The Unknown Known, which is an interview with Donald Rumsfeld. And I can't help but think that as I'm saying this, this is you know an interview with Donald Rumsfeld. There's going to be a lot of people, both younger and older, who are going to say, who? Sure. Um, <laughs> and so... You know, I think the first thing that we want to talk about, right, is Donald Rumsfeld, who who he is, uh, to kind of lay a lay a bit of foundation work. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, Donald Rumsfeld was uh, Donald Rumsfeld passed away in uh, June of this year. Um, 
He was, however, uh, the former Secretary of Defense uh, on two occasions, first under Gerald Ford in the late 1970s, and then once again under George Bush uh, from 2001 to 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, before that, he was a, a White House chief of staff for a little while. Um, he was an ambassador to NATO. Uh, he held a variety of other random positions in uh, the Nixon administration. And before even all of that, he was a member of the House of Representatives uh, representing Illinois' 13th district. Um, all of that is just a resume, though. And I think what we really want to talk about, right, is who he kind of was as a person. And that is something you certainly can get us in a weird way. I think you can get a sense of watching this film. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, you know, you watch the movie, uh, I think a couple of times now, and I'm, I'm curious as a person, what you feel you take away from, from like watching him talk. And obviously we're not trying to, you know, dance on the grave of somebody, somebody who's not here to necessarily defend himself, but this movie is pretty much, you know, him trying to defend himself. So I am curious, you know, what your takeaway is of him as a person uh, from, you know, from just, from just watching this movie, just watching these interviews. Yeah. So the thing you immediately get away is, is this man is, is no idiot. Like Donald Rumsfeld from like a clinical perspective is probably like an intellectual genius. Like he just comes off extremely smart. He has a high vocabulary. And and one of the most striking things that you realize immediately uh, in this movie, just through his, his simple dialogue at the start is, is that the man speaks like a poet and he writes like a poet. Like he's just very immaculate with words. And it, it probably should have been his true calling. Um, and there is, I, I don't know if you know this, but there's uh, a book that was released, I think, think in 2003 called Pieces of Intelligence, the uh, Existential Poetry of Donald Rumsfeld. And I, I have not read it, but I've, I've ordered the book because it, it's pretty apt. Some, somebody just went in and had a ton with fun with it, clearly, but it was probably a pretty easy job to do because he just speaks and writes in, in, in soliloquies and, and, and just goes off in, in, in a really like pretty way to listen to, but uh, if you kind of think about it a little bit deeper uh, as, as the director, you know, this movie does um, it starts to become uh, prone to opportunities to kind of challenge what he's saying, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, I think he presents himself early on in the film. He says something to the effect of uh, you know, some people are uh, emotional decision makers, but mm-hmm. I consider myself, you know, cool and level headed. Do you think that's a, a fair assessment or do you think it's more accurate to say that he is uh clinical and withdrawn and you know in in his decision making process and in the way that he interacts with fact shall we say yeah so i mean this becomes an interesting point of kind of defense department philosophy um and, and it goes in some to some constitutionality and things like that but like this movie quickly gives away that like he's a he's a bureaucrat and and he served i think for three years he was a, a navy aviator he was in the reserves for a number of years after that I, I don't know the extent of his true service but uh, i mean it wasn't huge uh but this is man is is, is lifelong in politics he's been at, at pretty much every level that you can be 
federally, he's super plugged. Um, and, and you can tell that uh, one thing that immediately struck me about Rumsfeld is while extremely intelligent and while willing to listen to those around him, he almost has this like fatalistic sense about him uh, that, that he gives off in a couple quotes in the movies that are just, especially when he's grilled of, of is, was this the right decision? You know, were, were there lessons learned from this, et cetera? His generic response in a more eloquent way tends to be like, what happens happens. And, and I guess we'll see in like history, history will write books about me and like some will be good and some will be bad. Um, and I, I think you get this, or I, at least I got the sense from him that he felt like he was doing his best to like apply his knowledge to all these different situations that he was in. But ultimately, especially in regards to talking to reporters trying to needle him comes to the sense that what happened happened. And, you know, the risks that I took were necessary because risks, risk taking is necessary at the level I was at in the situations I was at. Is there, well, and I guess we'll, I'll, I'll kind of stow that question for now. Cause I do want to talk about whether or not you've sensed there's an evasiveness to that mentality. Um, but you know, that's gonna, that's obviously that plays into a lot of the larger questions that I think we want to discuss in relation mm -hmm. to this movie and, and the global war on terror. But mm -hmm. um, you know, what do you, you know, like you said, he was kind of an entrenched bureaucrat. He's been, he was, I think he was, the youngest congressman ever elected uh maybe or one of so the he was the youngest defense secretary when he he first took the realm i'm not sure about senator but but probably something along those lines I, th I, I think he was only like 30 something i think at 30 yeah i think he was he was 30 years old in yeah, any case he you know 30 years old is very young whether or not he was the youngest um you know 30 years old he's been in this you know in, in these institutions for a long time so I guess the question then kind of becomes where, what were his priorities given what we see in the movie, given his interview responses institutionally, where do you think his priorities lied? So I think he takes a philosophical perspective and, and kind of this like quasi academic perspective, which I think makes sense because you look at his tenure uh, in as, as a, a house rep for Illinois and he was only in there for, for six years or, or you know, so, so not very long. So I, I don't know if he ever was like in an elected position long enough, a non-appointed position in government to ever feel a true accountability to citizens of the United States at large. So he, he never had an election to win. He never had anything apart from like job retention, which is a whole nother can of worms of, of, you know, appointed employees within uh, federal administration. But, uh, he never had this obligation to like make everybody happy. Um, even though he was a showman and the movie shows a lot of him, his, his press secretary meetings at, at the Pentagon and him speaking on guard, you know, in defense, he, he loved jostling with the reporters, but I, I think his responsibility, I, I think to me, it came out that he, he wanted to be part of history. You know, he, he was always surrounded by these heavy hitters, these major names. he, came in right at the end of Vietnam. And, and, and one thing that I think is overshadowed by his second term as defense secretary is by all accounts, he was actually very successful in his first term, uh, expanded the U2 program, like helped with SALT, helped initiate SALT 2 before Europe finished it. 
um, was was pretty hands off because that's the state of the Defense Department at that time. And and I think especially coming into his second John, uh, Secretary of Defense, his goal was to kind of ice that legacy and 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 especially given the people around him who were really just his community. Like he 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 was either raised by the people around him or you know did a ton of mentoring to to direct individuals around him like Dick Cheney who who you know was his assistant staffer for a while um it so I I think his drive really was to cement his place in history I'm sure he had some like base military drive from being in there to to defend the United States and 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 he he almost at points tries to have this kind of humanitarian spin of like look at all the the, the freedom that we were implementing in the the, the world and, and look at how human rights have improved in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, post-U.S. intervention. Um, so he, he seems to have some bones there, but, you know, when, when needled about, well, what about all these civilians that died? What about the cost? What about, you know, American soldiers? And, and you know, like, was their fight worth it? Once again, he defaults back to, well, war includes sacrifice, and that's the cost of doing business. And, and just something he continues to, to hit on when, when needled on those kind of questions. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to bring up, right, like you said, that he has this kind of focus on legacy, um, right, because it does make you sort of wonder what the rest of the priority list looks down the line like. And I think at one point, Errol Morris is asking him about his time as Secretary of Defense under uh, Ford, and kind of the, you know, the, the interim years and what was going to happen next. Um, and he talks to him about Reagan selecting a running mate, right? It's one of the few times we get like a straightforward answer Yeah. where, uh, you know, Errol asks him, uh, you know, so with a little bit of fate and one, and one change decision, there's a decent chance that you become president. And, you know, how do you feel about that? And he, I mean, he is like, he very quickly, I think, jumps to, you know, yeah, I mean, that could have happened. This is clearly something he's thought about. Like it's clearly something he is he's contended with. Um, and I do think that's interesting to hear from a, a secretary of defense, because I don't, I think secretary of defenses tend to blend into the furniture a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear that kind of ambition from a, uh, from a, a former secretary of defense. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and you, you talked about his, uh, you know, his, his legacy first and this, and then the kind of militaristic, maybe or not be militaristic, but the, uh, the sense of, of a, a military leader kind of behind him and the idea of, uh, you know, protecting the country, you know, one point, I think it's really the only time in the documentary we get what might seem like genuine emotion from him, right. Is when he's talking about the American soldier that uh, was wounded, that he, uh, went to visit, uh, at the hospital in DC and uh, Walter Reed. And he, um, he kind of tears up a little bit about that, but do you get the sense that he is, I hesitate to say, you know, a quote unquote benign racist, but like you yourself brought it up, right. That he has this emotional reaction to talking about an American troop, uh, being injured, but then, you know, conversely, when approached about what happened at Abu Ghraib and the, you know, the torture memos later on, he has this glib kind of like, oh, wow. Well, golly, look at that. Do you think that is, do you think that's a, a general personality defect or a philosophy? How did you respond to that? 
So I think it probably falls to um, nurture versus nature. And, and, and for me, I, I think it pretty just, just having studied to some very limited degree, having seen, you know, kind of these kind of DC people, senior executives, appointees, um, like he, he was crafted for this. You know, you don't, you don't become a senator at 30, 31 years old and spend literally, you know, your entire life entrenched to this secretary twice and not like drink the American Kool-Aid. And there's very few politicians at any level of any ideology who spend an amount of time, you know, as heads in DC and, and don't get some kind of like chip on their shoulder of American exceptionalism. And mm -hmm. to some level that's understandable because it's, it's kind of their job. Like your, your job is to, I mean, to use a frequent overused and, and kind of abused term, but, but is to be America first. It's, it's to represent your country and defend your countrymen and, and, you know, your philosophy beyond that of like, what is your greater role in the world? Um, it, it's just naturally going to shrink down to, yeah, maybe global peace and stability in these other countries and democratization or whatever else like would be nice. But at the bottom line, you know, he talks about these, these things as a meaning to an end. So, so trying to, you know, assassinate um, Saddam Hussein or, or, or the war to, to, take him from office and it's sure he talks about like to some degree what that would mean for the average Iraqi citizen but more so it's about the United States having a better foothold for Middle East defense being able to to counter Iran you know which was really the main target the entire time honestly is to be able to have some stable foothold in the Middle East to to be able to keep Iran in check um right so <laughs> Is he a racist? Like, does he have implicit bones? Does he mean ill intent towards people because they're non-American? Probably. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's by nature of the system and by nature of being, a, you know, a 50-whatever-year bureaucrat in D.C. is because you represent American interests first. And if that means, as he reiterates several times throughout the movie, like a means to an end or like a necessary sacrifice to further American interest. And I guess like probably in his mind, prevent Armageddon in the form of chemical and nuclear weapons, WMDs, mm -hmm. you know, then that, that, that's just probably the track that he goes on. It's probably for a greater, greater good, at least for his country. So that, so then it becomes a question of, is it in it, you know, it's kind of then presented as right. It's an institutional problem. It's the way that the institutions are built to some degree. And I guess at some point we have to say, right, these are the institutions that led to the global war on terror that led to our involvement in Afghanistan for, you know, 20 years, um, you know, led to our involvement in Iraq. And I think the question we can circle back to now is the idea of institutional accountability, right? Because that ability, that, that accountability is something that's pervasive with, with Rumsfeld. He's, you know, if he is not quick to answer questions directly, uh, especially the tough questions, but I don't think that that is a unique, you know, character trait to him. I think that that's something that was, fairly widespread in the institutions 
at you know the time of 9/11 mm-hmm. did the institutional accountability reflect anything at the time you know like you look at things that happened at, you know at Guantanamo Bay and at Abu mm-hmm. Ghraib that he was to some degree directly responsible for um though he uh, in the film though he he protests that point he says he didn't read any of the he didn't actually read any of the memos he just you know yeah. signed off on things but that's that's the point right i mean do you think that that was a larger institutional problem in 2001 so i mean in, in the context of the early 2000s yes because the philosophy of the department of defense and national security which obviously extends beyond department of defense it goes into intelligence agencies and everything like that uh state department um was flipped on its head on on account of the you know what will always be the flashbulb event that speaks to the next 20 years and counting which would be 9-11 and it'll be this idea that yeah and he talks about it in at the start of this film of of the impact that pearl harbor uh which uh you know, he, he would have been alive and pretty young for, so I imagine it would have had some impact on him. He was uh, 1932 or was born, so Pearl Harbor was 41. So might not have been the most aware of it, but but would have been, um, it would have impacted his early development. And then to, to go into a place throughout his life in which he has to play the pivotal role in national defense a couple times, um, and to have, you know, an equivalent of Pearl Harbor happen under your under your watch or under, you know, while you were in these bureaucratic positions in the form of 9-11, um, like it is going to create, if not just expedite this existing under attack complex that he, he would have had as someone, you know, with obviously a passion and a, a vested interest in national defense and, and a responsibility. Um, and, you know, I, I think to some degree you look at what he would have experienced during the Vietnam War and the failures of that and, and, and views of the futility of it, um, you know, known early on, especially to people, you know, within his level of, of executive position. Um, and, and I think that probably shaped him more than anything else. I would just have to imagine. And so your response to that is going to be assess the problem and address it in a way that that makes sense and that fits the scheme of the united states military history the problem is when people conflate pearl harbor and 9-11 they forget a key thing and it's that pearl harbor was a conflict in an existing war against japan you know this is an established really still an old world kind of war, World War II and the Pacific Front specifically. 9-11 was not that. And it, it's put Americans and especially defense officials and especially the Pentagon in a place where they felt like they had to have this overwhelming unified response similar to the United States did in World War II in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. And and you think about that time and, and you look into military history and and you know, United States was hugely diverse when it comes to Europeans, you know, pre-World War II. So there's a huge German population. There's this huge uh, concern over, you know, the, the war and entering the World War II was hugely unpopular at that time. After Pearl Harbor, you get a direct attack and suddenly 
it's at all costs we must you know terminate this threat to the american homeland which had not been attacked like that since 1912 in a non-comparable kind of way so when 9-11 happens and and you have this you know atrocity that happens in new york the natural response in having gone through you know that that military training having gone through west point having gone through your pensacola airbase etc is is how do we prepare for that kind of conflict how do we respond in a way that is is proactive and 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 uses intelligence in a way that we prevent that kind of thing from happening and if it does happen how do we respond in a way that is as successful as the pacific front in world war ii i i, I suppose you could say the problem of course is that 9-11 was not perpetrated by state actors it was perpetrated by terrorists and and from a slew of states, from a still controversial level of of, of actual state involvement. Um, so the United States is used to its Teddy Roosevelt philosophy of, of carry the big stick, you know, exactly. walk lightly, tread lightly. But all of a sudden, you can't tread lightly anymore because you've been attacked directly. So what do you do? You start swinging the big stick. Um, and that's pretty easy to do when you have a unified easy to attack island in the pacific who you can point to launch a fleet and 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 host a campaign against a campaign in the middle east against non-state actors is wholly different and 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 they knew this like it, they, there was no confusion they know this is a scattered force and that's that's why iraq happened it, it is is as they point out early in the movie and as everyone should be aware of now iraq held no real role in 9-11 there was there was al-qaeda forces present you know some regional instability and potential there but it wasn't centralized there but but the thought process and the interpretation was we need a foothold to be able to counter this radicalism which was a direct attack to the united states we need to launch this pacific campaign-esque island hopping so what are our islands well they're countries where we have some potential to establish air bases and 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 start strategic intelligence collecting and understand like where the threat is coming from like how how do we get closer to to that big island at the end and how do we we terminate that and eliminate the threat and and you know spread american democracy in a way that that creates a, a security bubble around us but it's just a different kind of war. And, and when you go hunting with a big stick or a hammer, everything starts looking like nails. And that's immediately what the Bush administration was faced with in the aftermath of 9-11 is because there was no individual target or none. Like you can't wage a campaign specifically against Osama bin Laden. Um, right. You know, and, and, and you can't like outline the, the borders of Al Qaeda. Well, then you have to set up this huge safety net around that area to contain the threat. And you have to get intelligence, uh, collect intelligence to be able to surmise, you know, where these, these heads are and, and, and create a wall. Um, and, and the United States and the Pentagon specifically has never been good or configured enough to be able to fight those conflicts successfully. Right. And I think, you know, we're 
obviously this, this is the first episode of a of a you know, what is going to be a long podcast where we talk about this from a variety of perspectives and i think we will eventually address whether or not that approach was even right uh you know because you know you, you're right you can't go to war with osama bin laden but we could have just assassinated him so you know it does become a question or we could have tried to rather but you know it becomes a question of was the was the approach right but you you did in a way preempt what i wanted to ask another question um you know, which is that in the film, we talk about, uh, you know, this idea of intelligence, right? Rumsfeld gives this long-winded answer about that there's, uh, you know, there's data and you pull from, you know, you, you pull from that fact and that becomes a set of information. And then intelligence is things that we think that we know. It's the data that we can't necessarily categorically put into a box and say, and we know this and that that is right that's the 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 theme of the film it's in the title the unknown known uh for those of you who don't are, are not familiar with the origin of that quote it comes from a 2002 uh defense department briefing in which Rumsfeld said um reports that say that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because as we know there are known knowns there are things that we know we know we also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And if one looks throughout history of or the, throughout the history of our country and other free countries, uh, it is the latter category that tends to be difficult ones. Um, and there is an additional category that he lays down the unknown known, which I do want to talk about before we finish up. But I guess, you know, the question is, you know, having these, these different types of intelligence becomes a, a sticking point for Rumsfeld personally. And I think for the administration at large in the institutional culture at the time, but I want to go past that because and, and the documentary, I think, kind of leads you to this point, but I am curious of your take on it. Would we still have gotten involved whether or not the intelligence said or was interpreted to say what it said, right? We got involved in Iraq because we had, we, we thought we had actionable intelligence that, there, that Saddam Hussein was creating or housing weapons of mass destruction. But the film definitely addresses this, you know, this double-edged sword of if you want peace, prepare for war. And Rumsfeld, we know institutionally, was a guy who was military-minded, who previously, when he was in the Department of Defense, uh, you know, as the Secretary of Defense in the 70s, kind of got knocked, right, for uh, hyping up the, the Soviet threat a little bit too much. So I guess the question then becomes, do you think that whether, you know, intelligence aside, would the global war on terror still have happened? You know, is, was it something that was an institutional fault, if you will, that was percolating something that was going to boil over, uh, given the right set of circumstances? And I know that's a big question, yeah. but it's, you know. So it, it, I think a little bit goes to the flip side of that quote which is also mentioned in the movie and, and the coin flip of if, if, you, if you, you're seeking peace, prepare for war. The flip side is, is belief in the inevitability of a conflict becomes a cause of the conflict. Um, so if, if you go monster hunting, you're going to find some kind of monster, whether it be what you ex 
you know, whether you expect it or not. But I, I think it was inevitable. Um, and, and part of that, like within the context of, of the early 2000s, is it, it was inevitable because it was already happening. Um, you know, their terrorism wasn't new. I, I think a forgotten thing in our recent history, especially among our generation of our age group, is that terrorism was hugely on the rise in the late 80s and the mid 90s and everything like that. Like, uh, you know, kind of the, the flashpoint was definitely, um, uh, you know, even earlier than that in, in the, the Munich Olympics. Um, and it, it, I think it just stewed for so long for this series of, of decades in which governments across the board were kind of paralyzed because I think the most applicable thing you could always look at that wasn't a conflict of terrorism, but was this conflict of ideologies and this insurgent force that's hard to counter was Vietnam. And people saw the vast failures of that. And I, I think people, and likely Rumsfeld himself, at least I would hope so, knew the follies of of starting this campaign because it would resemble this beast that surrounds you. There's there's no way to to route and get behind terrorism. And there's there's no way, there's no fix to just solve it. Uh, and and the fix is not not always negotiation. It, it's certainly not just going in and 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 finding all the terrorists and killing them because that just creates more terrorism. So, was something that resembled the conflict, the war on terror, inevitable? Yes, because that's the new warfare. That that's how small insurgent groups bleed these massive empires in order to further their ideology to further their political agenda, you know, which is the basis of terrorism is, is always, it's always political. And then you see that perhaps most apparently in Afghanistan right now, where the Taliban's goal is to become a government, you know, it, it's, it's to get the, uh, their ideology up across. So how, how do you have that kind of like political representation and how do you gain political power when there's this perception of a world police who, if they don't believe in your ideology, you know, dating back to Cold War, then then how do you how do you fight against that? How do you find success when you're so limited resource wise and, and personnel wise against the greatest military in human history by far? Uh, and it's to bleed them slowly, and it's to fight these wars that they don't know how to fight on on turf that they're unfamiliar with. Right. And I think, you know, I think towards the end of the film, uh, Errol Morris asks him, asks Rumsfeld, uh, you know, was he just point blank asks him, was the Iraq war a mistake? And Rumsfeld says, I think something very typically Rumsfeldy, right? Time, something like time will tell, you know, I guess time will tell. Mm -hmm. I mean, when this movie came out, this was 2014. Uh, I don't know if this came out right before or after uh you know isis took power in iraq or you know attempted to, to come to come to power in iraq um so i think i'm going to avoid the quagmire of asking you know was the iraq or was the afghan you know the, the war in afghanistan were those mistakes and i guess just more broadly ask you know do you feel that you know, given what you know, and given what we saw from Rumsfeld, did 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 the 
for a lack of a, a better turn of a phrase, did the, did the ends justify the means, you know, did at the end of the day, did the calculus line up the way Rumsfeld thought the way maybe the American population, the, the American public was led to believe. So it's always going to come down to individual ideology and, and often like who whose greater good is the good to pursue? Is it is it the good of the world? Is it the good of what you perceive someone else's good is? Is it you know the the good of your own country and and kind of that's the end all be all if you're in a, a position like Rumsfeld was, um, like the solution to terrorism is is not to ignore it. Um, you know, I, I imagine an inevitable goal of the world and 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 security would be to mitigate terrorism, prevent radicalism, allow for greater platforms of of dialogue. And I, I you know, this is all within the American context, but a greater global democracy so that these kind of military actions don't need to happen. And instead, instead of of leading the charge, militaristically it becomes diplomatically so was the need to address global terrorism necessary at large yes was it necessary for the united states to in some way respond to 9-11 yes um but once again, I think the fundamental challenge is, and it goes back to another poetic Rumsfeld quote uh, in which he discusses, you know, we leaders who follow other leaders, paraphrasing, but they tend not to fall in the same potholes. They tend to create their own. And I think over the course of the movie, we see... I, I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think I think Rumsfeld and to a greater extent, George W. Bush and his administration uh, in perhaps the most direct sequel possible in that being his father, H.W. Bush, and, and you know, all the, the prerequisites to this being the, the Gulf War and the prior invasion of Iraq, while more successful than the Iraq War fundamentally, uh, I, I don't think the Bush administration learned from the potholes that his father had established or the potholes that general uh, United States conflict against asymmetric warfare and, you know, even greater extent, you know, the, this involvement of, of other great powers, specifically Russia and Afghanistan, we fell in the same pothole. And, and yeah, maybe there were some different like nooks and crannies in the pothole and the way it went about was different, but like fundamentally the challenge and the ultimate folly tended to be ultimately the same. Uh, and I think that's where there was an ultimate failure in most Middle East conflicts and, and probably especially in Iraq was there was no effort to learn and, and come to this challenge with a different approach. It still ended up being this, we have to establish footholds. We have to establish a bombing campaign. We have to have ground presence and train and, and basically Americanize these foreign security leaders, presidents, uh, you know, troops, police forces. 
Um, and, and then anyone who doesn't acquiesce, especially, you know, the heads of these cut off the head of the serpent, which tends to be a hydra. So it doesn't ever work, right? No, I mean, it, it just doesn't work in terrorism. And that, that was one of the most infuriating things, especially when you talk about, it's not just terrorism too. It, it's, it's, um, uh, dictators as well and, and authoritarians. I mean, was, was, was there a chance that killing Saddam Hussein reinvents Iraq in a way that allows for revolution and allows for this greater democratization without all these atrocities? I guess, I guess you could roll the dice and say, Hey, if it lands on, on snake eyes, then, then, you know, maybe we'll call this a success, but more often than not, especially in the way that middle Eastern politics work, especially in kind of the lineage of, of politics and the, the, the general kind of more tribalistic, um, dynamic of how these countries are associated where they are never under any kind of unified force they're they're divided by these deep religious divides and these geographic divides and these philosophical divides more likely than not they're just going to be replaced with another head of the hydra um and change is going to be gradual and it's going to be iterative and smacking some you know around with a hammer is is likely going to spark more radicalism which is just an inevitable truth of 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 counterterrorism and 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 so that's where i think the means to an end fail fails is i think when it comes to national security when it comes to to international security sure there, there's going to be sacrifices to to run to the points there's there's going to be trials and tribulations and and lessons learned from these um international interventions or, or even you know increasingly domestic uh but was it worth doing? Uh, you can measure by success, but even beyond that, in this new era of warfare that started, you know, since World War II, there's not key objectives. There's there's not often signing of of declarations of peace and this this you know kind of greater end to a war. Um, it's it's often going to be lessons learned to deal with the next issue, and I, I think we're coming back to that sooner rather than later, especially in the the fall of Afghanistan in which is allowing for opportunity for ISIS to prop up. So I think the United States is in short order going to have to assess, did we learn anything in the 2014 through 2019-ish era of combating ISIS? Uh, can we do that again in a measured way that produces success and produces long-term regional stability? Uh, or do we not get involved and cut our losses and and find other ways to you know, pursue a greater peace and a greater sense of domestic security. Um, it will likely be a conflict that either directly or indirectly will have to be addressed. Um, but if we do the same thing over again, then I think I think that's the ultimate failure of of, of policy and practice. Of course, right. And I mean, you know, Rumsfeld is quick to call. Pearl Harbor, a failure of imagination. I wonder if, to some degree, there's a greater, a greater uh, poetry in that his lasting legacy and the lasting legacy of the institutions and the administrations uh, that he represented, right, is that same failure of imagination on perhaps even a greater scale. I guess let me let me ask you this. Uh, you know, we've I've kind of shaped a lot of this conversation around some questions. I am curious if there's any general thoughts you wanted to address with the film, with the the history represented in the film, um, or if there's any broad 
philosophical ideas you want to discuss about the global war on terror or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to quickly discuss is the origins and justification of the invasion of Iraq. And it, as we all know now, was based, and and we knew quickly on, I mean, it's easy to forget, but the Senate produced a report on the use of intelligence to justify the invasion of Iraq. Uh, in uh, I think it was written in 2003 and released in 2004. We immediately knew that were massive mistakes made, and it it goes back to the Punnett square of known and unknown. Um, and a greater question that I think is the most important lesson to be learned here, and and an aspect of all future. U.S. involvement in in foreign militaristic conflict is how are we collecting information? How do we know the information that we are collecting is is accurate and responsible to act upon? Obviously, there is a greater question of like what is the level to act upon, you know, which is a greater political and philosophical discussion. But but I, I think our ability to collect and interpret intelligence and 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 one of the greatest problems of the federal government right now and in intelligence and security. Uh, departments is is this ability to dismiss experts and obviously in our current world we're seeing a lot of that right now Uh, but a key aspect and trigger point of the justification to invade Iraq was that the Iraqi government went to Niger and uh, they uh, purchased these these uh, metal tubes that the Department of Defense uh, assessed could be used to create nuclear weapons um, and and to continue nuclear proliferation. Um, And a bunch of Department of Energy officials came out, Department of Energy being the department that oversees all nuclear weapons in the United States and said, hey, just so you know, these canisters are not capable of use in centrifuges for, for you know, generation of, of nuclear grade uranium or, or you know, any kind of weapons grade. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, yeah. So, the people who would know best were dismissed, and and it at every level. I mean, it's not just that one story that comes into play when it comes to justification to to invade Iraq, um, but. At every level, and, and the, the report is long, but it's worth reading if you're really interested in this kind of stuff, uh, is there is this confirmation bias of we know Saddam is a, a bad actor. We know he we know for a fact that he has had interest and, and to some degree weapons of mass destruction in the past, most predominantly uh, chemical weapons, uh, that the UN went in and, and neutralized and, and felt assured that we're gone. The risk was that they're reproliferating in one way or another, and the greater risk is that they're trying to acquire some kind of nuclear capability. And at every level of intelligence, there was an opportunity to speak to reliable actors who work in the field, who have direct knowledge of really more often than not the, the physics and logistics of weapons of mass destruction and what they require to 
to to to to proliferate for a country to proliferate. And at every step in the way, there were red flags. Uh, but when you do mass intelligence collection, there's always going to be these things that that lead you along these these dead ends that that seem to pull at your head and and lure you into these potholes. And and it often in Iraq was this human intelligence of like these these more often than not guys in German refugee camps or excuse me, not refugee, but uh, uh, um, detention camps uh, that we're just trying to get out of camp and trying to get a paycheck and, and try to, to, to protect their, their country, Iraq, that would come up with these fake narratives that they were nuclear scientists or chemical scientists and that they had these rolling rigs of, of factories that they'd move around. So when satellite intelligence comes in and you start seeing things that resemble that or things that don't put your eyes trick you because you have this confirmation bias on intelligence that leads you to believe that these little breadcrumbs all amount to something larger. Um, you know, that's, that's where you go off the deep end because if you don't trust the experts and the people who are able to declare whether what you're assessing is, is physically possible or within the realm of possibility. And, and, you know, especially when it's something as, as definitive as invading a country and creating years of stability and, and civilian and, and military death, there's just this ultimate failure of intelligence. That's what the Iraq war outlines. And it's what will continue to plague us as a, a country that will always be relevant in national security until we refine our system for collecting and acting on intelligence and perhaps even more importantly, synthesizing it so that we are able to understand data and information and turn it into intelligence that is reliable to act upon. Right. And stop chasing monsters, yeah. you know, well, Jake, I want to thank you very much. I think we uh, had a a great deep dive into uh, this movie. We took a big dive into the unknown known. <laughs> um, and I think it's a, a great jumping off point to have all of our further conversations that I know that you and I and everybody else uh, that's going to appear on this podcast are going to have about the global war on terror. Um, it was good to get a good foundation in there. Um, so I'll open the floor up to you now. If you have any, uh, if you have anything or anybody that you want to plug, um, anything you want to discuss that's topical, go for it. Yeah. Just, uh, first, thanks for having me. This is, this is awesome. I, 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 I love the idea behind this podcast and, and, you know, one thing I would love to see you continue to touch on is, is just the role that American media has always played in our role in the world and the perception that the world has on us. I think it's one of the most, uh, it's just such a huge part of American history and the way that we interact with the world at large, um, you know, and, and that's the reason that things like the Pentagon and State Department have specific offices to be able to to throw tanks and people and information at, at you because it, it's a huge foundation of how we perceive the United States. And I think that that flows into a number of movies that, that you'll be looking on in, in future um, episodes. But uh, one other thing that I would like to leave off on, uh, obviously there's an enormous uh, crisis happening right now and a, a lot of people in need um, in the form of, of uh, refugees from Afghanistan. Uh, given the current situation. Um, if you're interested in, in helping out in any kind of way, uh, whether it be time, funds, uh, or, or just promotion, uh, I encourage you to look into the resettlement agencies of the United States. Uh, I believe there's about a dozen of them. Um, there's the Church World Service. 
uh, Episcopalian Mitigation mis uh, Ministries, Hebrew, Hebrew Immigrant and Aid Society, uh, International Rescue Committee, World War Relief Corporation, uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, all of these agencies and more um, are the key actors when it comes to U.S. efforts to, to um, take in refugees uh, and, and, and put them in a place that allows them to get back on their feet and rebuild their lives after um, you know, these, these uh, terrible conflicts. Um, I, I encourage you to look into them, to support them in, in any way that you can. Uh, it's really what makes a difference um, from from the level of you and I and and uh, hopefully all the listeners as well. So, but. And I will leave links to those all below for our listeners to go and take a look at and uh, perhaps participate with. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this conversation has been enlightening, and I hope you join us next week as we dive deeper into the global war on terror. This episode was released on Saturday. However, our regular releases will occur on Mondays. Please follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or SoundCloud to stay up to date.